welcome to an all new Great Moments in Weed History. On this episode, we're going to tell the tale of a second generation weed outlaw who as a young man fought the law and lost but never lost faith in the transformative power of the cannabis plant. Fast forward to today, and the hero of this tale is now a successful cannabis business owner and the mayor of Lake Tahoe, California, the very jurisdiction where the authorities once literally tried to run him out of town. That's right. After years of running from the police while growing and selling cannabis, my guest this weed, the one and only Cody Bass, decided to run for higher office himself and won. Now he's running the city. We'll hear the ballot of Cody direct from the horse's mouth, starting with his experiences growing up in a family of Texas weed smugglers. Cody is someone I have personally known for a long time, but I gotta say, until we sat down for this sesh, I never really understood just how wild his weed journey has been To me, he embodies the anti-authoritarian streak that kept the cannabis movement going during the darkest days of prohibition. Because, think about it, without weed outlaws, there'd have been no weed, and without weed, there'd have been no weed movement. Before we settle in a sesh with Cody, I do want to pause and say a huge thank you to everyone who supports Great Moments in Weed History on Patreon. I truly could not keep making this podcast without your support. To be honest, I am uh, barely making it now. And if you're thinking, dang, what if this podcast I enjoy went away forever? Well, uh, that means it is time, my friend, to throw in on this shit, man, or woman, or non-binary stoner, So please visit greatmomentsinweedhistory.com to sign up for as little as a dollar a month or for just a little more. You can get top shelf bonuses like a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pop Properly, mailed directly to your door. I am, as promised, doing shorter spiels for support because... Well, someone was mean to me in the comments about it, but I will just say that this podcast is completely independent and made by hand by just little old me. So please ask yourself, wouldn't helping me create and share these authentic outlaw cannabis history stories with the world bring you eternal happiness for just a dollar? Mm, One dollar for eternal happiness. Mm, I'd be happier with the dollar. Please check us out at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and let's keep this thing going. And please post about us on social media with the hashtag greatmomentsinweedhistory. And don't forget to tell your friends about this show. On to the interview. For this one, I have got some fire weed ready to light up. But wait, I am getting a special transmission from you. Yes, you. And you are telling me that you love weed and outlaw stories and real authentic cultural history. But there's just one catch. You are not currently as lit as you would like to be to endeavor on this journey. And all I can do is offer you some time-tested advice, which is the same advice I've given you every episode of this program, which is to just 
chill and hit pause. And you can use that time at your leisure to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to do as I've done and pack a bowl or a bong or go all the way and endabulate those dabs or go even further to the known edges of the weedy universe by ingesting all the edibles you can lay your hands on as long as you can handle it. The one thing you've got to remember to do is once you are ready, you got to hit unpause because we'll all at that point be ready right along with you for another great moment in weed history. Cody, welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. It's so good to be here, David. Always a pleasure to see you. Yes, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I'm looking forward to sort of hearing your whole weed life journey. And on this podcast, that always starts with the same question. When did you first become aware of the cannabis plant in any way? How did this plant enter your consciousness? I come from a family that was very involved with cannabis as a as a child. Uh, but as far as when I became aware of the smell that permeated like most of my existence, I, I think I was probably about nine years old because I, I was the youngest of three. So um, I had brothers that uh, obviously we're always, you know, I was always looking to, to see what the next coolest thing was. And then, yeah, it wasn't too far after that, that I had decided to use cannabis, but it's been around me since, you know, before I existed, my family has been a part of it for a very long time. What era were you growing up in? What part of the, of the world? And, um, you know, what was going on around you that, that brought you into sort of, you know, the family tradition? I was born in 1980. So in 1989 was when, you know, I, I kind of came about that. And uh, that same year, actually, my dad was uh, sentenced to prison for a 15-year sentence for uh, smuggling cannabis and and dealing with cannabis in the state of Texas. And at the time, I, my family wasn't being really upfront with me about why he was going to prison. Um, so it was kind of an interesting journey from, you know, th that era of time and in Texas, just outside of Dallas, which was very anti-cannabis and anti-so many things. I, I uh, began to use cannabis when I was right about a, at the end of my, like, you know, when I was like 11 to 12, somewhere in that ballpark is when I used it. And at the same time, I was told, you know, hey, actually, your dad's not, you know, fighting oil well fires in Iraq. He's actually in Huntsville, Texas in prison, and he's in prison for cannabis. Um, and so, you know, I went to the first time, like, to see my dad. I would go every other week um, as a 12-year-old kid and going into a prison is a pretty intense thing. At the same time, I'm, like, starting to, you know, smoke, and my friends, all of us around, are kind of starting to use cannabis. It definitely, looking back, like, that, you know, it, it really showed me, like, how wrong, uh, especially because my dad was actually an amazing father and really a good person, and they came from like the time of like smuggling out of Acapulco and through the sixties and 
never carried a gun or ever had a speck of violence in any of their cases uh, whatsoever. And, and we're very from that era. And so as a child of the, you know, my dad being in prison, it was a really, it was something that, again, like kind of just sparked the fire. Just to, just to set the scene of 1988-89 in Texas, you're looking at uh, one of the most intense periods of the modern war on drugs, um, going from the Reagan era to the first Bush era. And then you're looking at one of the most uh, intense law enforcement states in the country in texas a place of course that still has not uh legalized cannabis you're very close to mexico so there's that tradition of smuggling um and you have a a state that on the one hand uh loves to sort of uh flaunt its anti-authoritarian streak that you alluded to but at the same time is very very uh actively putting people um, very unfortunately, like your father, in a cage for a plant. And so all of these uh, contradictions and dichotomies in our society are landing on you at a very young age, at, at a very impressionable age. Um, at the same time, it seems like cannabis is coming into your life. W when was your first consciousness amid all of this propaganda and amid this terrible uh tragedy that that befell your family when did you have that moment of wait this plan is good and what is happening around this plan is actually the problem to the full policy part of that question like it came to me when i saw the movement in california so i i get to california like 95 coming out of texas like you didn't even realize that it would ever be possible that cannabis would ever even have a chance on any level uh to be to be legal. And, um, and of course my family, um, because, you know, it's not just my dad, my uncle, uh, was given two life sentences for cannabis. I mean, our family has some serious, um, things. And so you can imagine like they were trying to not see me go down the same path, um, as they also were locked up and like, didn't realize that there was actually a movement going to happen or that was organizing at the level, um, that, that would actually make a change. And, and honestly, like getting to California, um, was the best, definitely by far the best thing that ever happened to me, but also like it, it helped me realize there was a movement and there was a path to right or wrong. Absolutely. We're, you know, we're talking about 1996 in California. This is the year that proposition 215 was passed by voters in that state that in essence was the first statewide medical cannabis law. And, uh, to hear more about that movement that you're talking about, you can go back and listen to episodes of this podcast about uh, activists like Dennis Perone, Brownie Mary, uh, and the episode about Wham, all uh, showing how this movement in response to a health crisis around HIV AIDS, and of course, cannabis also being an effective medicine for uh, any number of ailments, um, were able to, through a mix of, um, on the one hand, working within the system, running initiatives, lobbying public officials, doing public education campaigns, uh, while simultaneously engaging in civil disobedience, opening uh, underground, in essence, dispensaries, providing, in the, in the case of Brownie Mary and Wham, 
uh, free cannabis uh, to chronically and terminally ill people who couldn't otherwise afford it. And and as a as a young person, you you landed in this moment of of really uh, groundbreaking change. I, I would say probably the most uh, impactful public policy change around cannabis in the modern era. Um, how did you uh, begin to move from consumer slash outlaw, we'll say, into an activist? How did, how did you join in that cause and, and, and start to fulfill that role? I essentially hooked up with some people out of Laytonville up in Mendocino County uh, in that summer and began to work with them. Uh, they had cannabis that we, we basically hooked up on the ski lift here at Heavenly um, and became good friends and taught them how to snowboard. And then, hey, you want to come and work up at our at our farm in the summer? And I was like, well, of course. Uh, and then back in those days, it was still like full camouflage. Like you worked, um, every water line had to be buried. You grew cannabis under the, the canopies of manzanita bushes that we would thin out. Um, and so we grew, you know, eight or 900 plants, but every plant was like a quarter pound or a half pound plant. Um, but it was the most insane amount of work ever. And that's because we still had camp, which was the campaign against marijuana planting, very active um, in all of that area. And so going through that side of the the real like criminal policy aspect of what that had done to the to the northern communities. And I was 18 in those like 18, 19, 20, uh, began going to reggae on the river and really started to, you know, begin to understand the northern California community um, and be a part of it and work in it. And um, it was very uh, back in those days, it, it was like a very real thing to uh, to actually be willing to 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 work in in those environments in that place. And it was because the policy at the time, like, was definitely you, you were still looking at uh, time in prison. And so, it, but it also created a such a strong community and such an amazing group of people that brought cannabis freedom well before the movement, for decades before we had any law to protect us. Um, and so going through, like getting there in 98, that's the same year I got my recommendation uh, from Molly Fry. And out of all the growers that I knew up there, most of them were terrified at that point to get recommendations, to walk into dispensaries, to have really much to do uh, with like what was happening in the Bay Area and in LA. But for me, I was much more open to like, no, I, I'm willing to go and be a part of that and, you know, go to OCBC and get Keith boxes and bring them up north and get hash bags and bring them up north and started to kind of under, you know, be the conduit between a lot of growers up north um, and the dispensaries in Oakland as well as in LA and throughout that area. And so we really, you know, th that brought me in touch with all of the, the kind of dispensary owners and lawyers and started going to you know, the, the old school parties with ASA where there was just, a, there was a lot back then the movement was very small. There wasn't like, you know, there was definitely no industry. It was like all familiar faces and people that you knew everywhere. Oh, there was an industry. <laughs> well, there, there was an industry, I, I, but it, you get what I mean? There was an underground, it was a traditional like way of trade and underground culture that was like so strong and so cool. But, but really what happens, I, I, uh, worked up there for from 98 to about 2005, where I was able to uh, get enough money together to buy my own property. 
Um, and in 2005, I, I bought my own place in Willits. Now we're talking about what's called the Emerald Triangle, which is Mendocino County, Humboldt County, and Trinity County in Northern California. This is an area uh, where people really started growing cannabis in the sort of back to the land era of the late 60s, people who were uh, seeking uh, to live off the land and cannabis was a part of that lifestyle. Um, we've talked a lot about that community on this show. In particular, uh, you referenced camp, uh, the, the helicopter raids uh, by the federal and state government. And we have an episode about efforts up there to, in essence, um, monitor that police activity and broadcast over the radio um, warnings to people when when the police might be coming up their road or flying over their land um, and the very tight-knit community that developed uh, as a result. So what can you tell me about the strains that were around at that time? And what can you tell me just about that way of life, especially as, as a young person coming from a very different uh, place to this sort of, you know, behind the Redwoods curtain uh, underground outlaw weed world? You know, for me as a kid, like I actually really loved the outdoors, was an avid backpacker. So kind of moving in and being able to live on the hill all summer was great for me. You know, back then, like the the strains, you know, were very like, I, I almost want to call them land race. Like we only had very few silver, the California Big Bud, Salmon Creek, uh, the red, like we, we, it was not like these like broad drawn out names. Now, the one strain that I actually still have today that that I've grown for the last 25 years, um, we call the perps. And I can remember uh, in 1998, and, and I still know the guy that that went to Afghanistan and got uh, those seeds and brought them back into Mendo. And that was like when the perps, you know, really started. And it was out of Garberville that the people that brought it back through. And, um, you know, it, it was like the hype uh, of basically almost like 98 to 05, you know, purple weed was being talked about everywhere. Um, and then, you know, out of the perps, we had, there, there was like the Durban poison and we started to see the cherry kush. And then that's what brings together the Girl Scout cookies. And it was just such a smaller, or, or I guess a longer evolution back then um, compared to like what we see right now with every day. Uh, but really like being, you know, that young and coming into seeing things like, the Matil community and reggae on the river and how organized uh, this culture was, was just very eye-opening and really like helped me become who I am and taught me a lot um, about like that we can still have strength in numbers and overcome, you know, again, right the wrongs. And, and that's kind of, yeah, it empowered me, I would say, as a kid at that time. You know, another aspect of all of this is, is you know, now currently we have sort of these two models of cannabis cultivation. One is pretty much an industrial model. Um, and the other is sort of the cottage model uh, where people might have a small plot that's licensed or even unlicensed near their home that they can tend to. But in this era, uh, we, we had a lot of and what it sounds like you were involved in is guerrilla gardening this idea of really needing to hide what you're doing and I'm, I'm hoping you can kind of explain what what was involved in that when i began up there in in the summer of 98 uh there, there was like no uh precedent in the courts for prop 215 so essentially even your mendocino county sheriff all the way through highway patrol every part of 
uh, every agency was not recognizing Prop 215. And, and it took, I want to say it was probably about the summer of 02, and I'll never forget it. The guy that I worked for, uh, because I, I worked and didn't own the property in those days. And he said, this year, we're not even, he said, we're pulling them right out on the ridge. We're going to get 100-gallon pots. We're putting them, like, right where you can pull your four-wheeler up to. I'm like, no way. He's like, yep, we're just doing 99 plants. That's, like, a one plant under the federal limit. And we're doing full sun. Uh, and we'll get, like, two to three pounds plants and, like, do better than than we've, you know, been able to do with 800. That that shift was because of the precedent set in the state courts. And uh, thankful to to many of like the freedom fighters that brought their cases and were willing to go in front of juries and prove that we had these rights to the voters. But before that, people at least that I worked for and many of the people are some of the best stewards of land that I've ever known and, and taught me my way. And, you know, that they lived off of their land and there was not like... You know, beyond that, yeah, we would literally have to dig ditches and bury water lines because of thermal imaging on helicopters and then being able to follow the water lines from your water tank to your gardens. Uh, we had to do things like that. But we used nothing but organic fertilizers of bat guano and seabird guanos. And nobody I ever knew up there used gnarly chemical fertilizers. Not to say that some people's operations don't do that. Uh, the, the old school people from up there, that was not their way and, and still isn't their way. And, and back then, like it was nuts. We would get into, you know, walk way out on a ridge and find an area of a ridge where you would have, you know, a canopy that was like maybe 18 feet tall and you'd take machetes and you would clear all of the canopy out except for the very, you know, top layer. Um, but the helicopters would literally try to use their wind blades to like open up the, uh, you know, they, it was unbelievable what what camps efforts um, and you spoke about COG, which was the the uh, KMUD would would have the people that would report on the helicopters. And so we would have our radio stations on in our truck or wherever, like blasting because they would say, you know, oh, Branscombe Ridge, there's three helicopters. But, you know, and, and there was a whole community activism against that up there. Because the thing back in that day was that as long as you didn't get caught in the garden, they had the right to search without a search warrant. It's called an open field raid. Uh, but they didn't really have the right to arrest anybody so long as you weren't within the vicinity of the garden. So it was just this eradication thing of uh, we can land and do an open field raid, but don't be anywhere close to that. And also don't have the patches of your garden planted within the area that you live or that your home is at. So we didn't grow huge amounts, three, 400 pounds or something. And, but at that day it was like $3,000 a pound, right? So it would provide a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of good. When I think back to it, it was actually a, a very awesome, awesome time. Uh, and a lot of, a lot of things changed, but I, I think it's hard to know if it's always for the better, but I, I do think that looking forward, like cannabis is available to more people. So uh, but I kind of want to go back. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that era and that outlaw time and that outlaw spirit is something that I think we can and should celebrate for really good reasons. The way that that those arrests ended was changes in the law. The way those changes in the law happened was because of changes in public perception of cannabis and the people who use cannabis. And none of that would have been possible without cannabis. So if they had outlawed cannabis and no one grew it, that would have never changed. Or I often like to say if they had outlawed kale, 
we would have just eaten spinach. No one would have been out in the hills growing kale and risking a decade in prison because it's not as important of a plant to us as humans as cannabis. At its height in this country alone, almost 900,000 people a year were getting arrested for choosing a uh, safe and effective medicinal plant. And now that uh, number is well under 300,000 and trending down and down every year. I think that we can love that outlaw era and we can love the outlaws who brought us weed in this dark ages of cannabis history uh, while also celebrating this uh, social change. And, And maybe that brings me to when did you see a place for yourself above ground and what was the first step you took in in that direction i had been going into dispensaries knew a lot of dispensaries owners and at the time i went to up to reggae on the river and i was approached by an old friend uh that told me hey you know i've got this opportunity and there's a dispensary in berkeley that is at the long haul bookstore which was uh you know just on shattuck uh avenue and they've been there they were the original dispensary of berkeley uh, had been there actually since like 1993, even before Prop 215. Uh, his name was Jim Squatter. He's an amazing activist that was giving free cannabis away on Fridays, uh, just every Friday in Berkeley. Uh, that it happened before you know 96. So, anyways, that the long haul is, is an amazing anarchist bookstore, and they allowed a dispensary to operate there um, for a good like 10 to 12 years. And and finally, that that's also where a lot of like great activist groups meet. Uh, but the, the, the board of the bookstore kind of said, look, you're like, you've got to relocate this, uh, this, this dispensary. <laughs> this is, a, this is our bookstore. Uh, so anyways, that's what actually brings me in. Um, I just want to yeah. quickly say an anarchist bookstore that sells weed, uh, <laughs> t- ticks a lot of boxes for the host of this podcast. Uh, but <laughs> please go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was, uh, and so I end up, um, with, uh, Andre special and me and Jim squatter and we, uh, begin to meet about how we're going to move this this dispensary out of um, the, the you know bookstore and into where CBCB Canvas Buyers Club of Berkeley currently exists. And uh, so that was kind of the first like, all right, I'm moving on from just growing in the summers, and we're going to actually do um, a, a dispensary. And at the same time, the coffee shop that I had bought here in South Lake Tahoe. Uh, had been evicted from the location because of the bust and an old family and whatever. So they evicted us and my business partner found a new location here uh, in South Lake Tahoe. So I come to see it and we go uh, and I'm like, well, hold on. Like there's a huge, about to be huge vacant space right next door. Like let's open a dispensary. Tahoe's never had a dispensary. The story about this is kind of cool because it was uh, a family that owned this property that it was like a founding family of Tahoe. And anyways, the, the, the lady was very somewhat not anti-cannabis, just never had used it in her life. And, and so we took her to uh, Capital Wellness in Sacramento to show her how a dispensary operated. And Jack Herrera actually happened to be there because we had a smoking lounge. Uh, and she got, she was like 85 years old and, and she spent like an hour and a half with Jack Herrera where, where she said, fine, I'll let you open a dispensary here in, in Lake Tahoe, which was, uh, the first dispensary of its kind. And so we, we went for that too. And so we had at, at that time, this is about 2010, uh, we, we got four dispensaries open and operating. We, we opened a second one in 
Berkeley, in Sacramento, we had our Tahoe dispensary going, we had our Berkeley dispensary going, and we had a, a full operation happening at the property in, um, in Willits. And we were doing, you know, we sponsored uh, the, the MPP party that, that raised like $750,000 with, with Dale Sky Jones. We had what was called the Revolutionary Love Project, and it was kind of our... Uh, basically we bought, it was like the, the nonprofit that we were going to use to fund some amazing things. And we did, we bought a, a house in, in Fair Park, uh, or I'm sorry, in Oak Park in Sacramento that we turned into a community center, bought a lot next door to make a community garden. Um, and we were doing just really a lot of the activism and advocacy things through the Revolutionary Love Project. And so we went to Reggae on the River and the following week we got raided by um, DEA, IRS, they they basically raided, you know, the 30 acres that I had or the 550 acres that we had, but they didn't go into any one of the open dispensaries that we had. They they began to charge me. And, and through that, as you can imagine, after that happened, uh, we we ended up uh, in a really difficult financial place. We We kind of had invested so much into our cultivation and we never were were able to pull it off. And when you have new dispensaries, they're not they don't exactly make money if they ever do, but they don't, they don't really uh, thrive in their first. And, and so literally we had three brand new ones and it was a difficult time. So uh, essentially we, you know, we go through that and it was terrifying because when that happens, there's three years that the feds can just send you a letter or come raid your house and, and you're indicted. And we also, every day, we're waiting for them to raid our four dispensaries. So the staff training, uh, we we would commonly have to go through raid drills. How do we deal with, you know, uh, we would burn our records literally in the fireplace daily. Like we just did not, it, it was a very uh, interesting time. Yet we had our BOE seller's permit and we're paying sales tax on all the transactions that were happening at every dispensary. We were paying our, you know, employee tax. We had workman's comp. We had all of the things normal businesses have, but you're having to live in that like terrified way. You're, you're subject to all these regulations, but you're also not just in theory, because of course, cannabis is still uh, federally illegal and a schedule one uh, drug according to uh, federal law enforcement and theoretically every state legal uh, business could be raided tomorrow. Uh, but in 2010, this was happening regularly. Dispensaries were being raided. Uh, state legal cultivation was being raided. And this is also sort of the first what was called the green rush when you are uh, into this uh, heady brew of regulations and law enforcement, you also had the investor class, people coming from outside of cannabis with a lot more financial resources than anybody had ever really brought to this before and with political connections and with business connections. And as somebody who uh, came from this very uh, authentically from the culture, you know, who'd been up in the hills uh, in the Emerald Triangle, uh, you know, crawling through the woods and hacking out a, a hidden patch of weed. How did it strike you 
to be, uh, you know, having to follow all of these regulations, still getting raided and having the threat of the boot of the government on your neck um, and looking over your shoulder at this coming wave of uh, investment plays and sort of Wall Street type people looking to come in and, and make a killing. Our first move after that happened was that fuck this, we're, we're suing Lindo County. Like, uh, let's not stand back. Like, let's represent that we have. Uh, and so we did. We, we filed a lawsuit for like $2.8 million against the county. And, uh, and, it, and it probably maybe looking back wasn't the smartest move because... Uh, <laughs> but either way, it, it was the move we made. And, uh, and, and then what happened, and of course, you know, we fired all of our farms back up and got everything back rolling and tried to get everything. And we filed that lawsuit. And after six months, you file tort, you have another six months to file the case. And about, I don't know, five months after it, boom, they raid us all again. And at this point, we are like beyond tapped out. When you get raided like that and you have so many staff people in jail and the whole nine yards, like it is unbelievable. So after it happening twice in a six month period, we were just unbelievably tapped out but we did have these four dispensaries open a lot of this stuff had hit the media so people like knew about it especially in the drug policy world um and and actually we get approached well first by ethan nadelman to say hey you know i have somebody here that like really has an interest to meet you guys and uh so me and my partner are like well that's that's great yeah of course we'll meet with anybody and um and it happened to be montel williams and so uh, Montel Williams was given the keynote at, at the conference and, um, and he, he's, you know, somebody that absolutely avidly believes in medical cannabis as an MS patient. And, and actually, of course, like a, a striking person and, um, and somebody that wanted to, at that point, like really get engaged. And I think that, you know, had heard about what had happened to us as well, knew that we had at the time, like four dispensaries across Northern California, um, our cultivation and, and really kind of presented to us that he could, you know, join our team. And so at first it was a really like, all right, this is something that could be like what we, what we need. Um, and then it, it is what like basically broke me and my partner apart. And, and then, um, you know, there's a lot of like history that is not, you know, of something that I don't mind sharing. It's just like, we, I personally, well, Jack Herrera passed like that summer and, and we had been spending a lot of time with Jack. He'd come, he'd come here to talk about wellness a lot and he had passed and that was like really intense, but his message had always kind of been about like not to let, you know, cannabis become fully corporatized. And we went and met with Montel in New York and he, he presented a plan for New York state where he knew the governor and, and knew that the 9,600 pharmacies that existed in New York state uh, would become what distributes cannabis there. And that you know, what will get licensed is the four suppliers that supply those 9,600 pharm pharmacies. That's exactly how a pharmaceutical work. There's like four distributions and then they, they supply those. And his point was why try to recreate when, when we already have this network of pharmacies, why would we want to recreate, uh, the, the on the street model? Let's just be the distributors and I can be one of those and we can all be that together kind of situation. And for me, it was just at the time, again, maybe something that, but of course, here we are in New York is, is not even, so that would, that was so long ago, uh, but it did basically, and his model, uh, at the time, not to say anything like it was just something different than what I was about, what I had been taught and what, 
what I was going to be about and do. So we ended up splitting our ways and not without a serious dispute or whatever, but we've been able to, I think, you know, I, I, at the time basically ended up with Tahoe Wellness Center. And, um, but that was like 2011. Uh, it's been a, quite the journey since that point <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. This, uh, this, this brings us up to really almost, you know, the beginning of, 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 of a story that I really want to track with you, which is your involvement in local politics. So tell me about, uh, that first step that you took in that direction of, of, uh, going from sort of being an outlaw living outside of the system to somebody targeted by the system uh, to realizing that you yourself uh, wanted to work within the system to to change some of the laws and some of the policies that you were uh, unfortunately targeted with. We opened Tahoe Wellness in 2009. Within three months, the, the city council was organizing a moratorium, uh, but we had opened and established our legal rights and essentially at that point had rights that were more or less grandfathered to, to where we didn't have to fully comply with an ordinance, but at that time, you know, the, the better way that we believed was actually to work with the city and try to show them best practices and things that we already were complying with. Because our model really was based off of self-regulating, doing what we know would be right, even though it was written nowhere in law. And so from the early years of like 2010, 2011, um, I was working with the city. Um, all the dispensaries that were opened at the time formed like an ad hoc committee to help them craft the ordinance. We had three operators here locally in town. And uh, one of them was, you know, they were from LA and they were just very not by that way of it. They were on the full opposite spectrum, which was like in a small town, you know, we all knew would only go for so long. And so that really put a bad taste in the city's mouth. And then the second operator got busted, like I think in Missouri with like 80 pounds and a bunch of cash and this and that. It was decided like at that time by city council, not on the public record, but that that they were going to be done with cannabis. They were so over it. They, they even had like a city city council member that was uh, charged with a felony for embezzlement for taking five grand. So it just reached that point uh, that locally here, they were done. You know, we weren't going to stop and we had operated with those self-regulated practices. And like, we also have from day one had a love program for terminally ill patients where, you know, up to 18 people get $175 a week. If they have a terminally ill diagnosis, we have a, a you know, compassion program for low income patients that like 60 to 80 people and up upwards of like 120 have been on it where they get like four grams of uh, decent cannabis uh, for free weekly. Um, so we had built, and we also have a community center that still exists today uh, where we provide things like free yoga, haircuts, art class, uh, any type of advocacy group that would like to meet or uh, anything that's positive for the community. It's open space for that. Uh, so we, we've ingrained ourselves in that way from the beginning and through the fight from like 2011 um, all the way up to actually like 2019, which is kind of crazy. And it takes quite a few different turns and like, um, it's been unreal. They attempted everything from coming to us and fighting us a thousand bucks a day and us having to go and get the courts to, to rescind the fines. I mean, I was in lawsuits constantly with the city for, for seven or eight years. And so getting into all that detail would take so long because there was so many little fights, but most of it's in the papers. In 2015, 
we end up getting raided by the sheriff's office. They break our community center doors open. They come and rob us blind for over a million bucks. And what it was due from uh, is that we had a local uh, local narcotics enforcement team called Slednet, which which was our local police departments like undercover uh, and sheriff's office undercover team. Uh, the commander of that team ended up, uh, he had a, a house in Nevada because we're on the state line. And uh, he lived down there. And so they get a call to his house that is like a domestic disturbance. His wife calls crime. And they go to his house and they're in Nevada. And they don't care if he's a cop in California. The Nevada law says that they have to take him to jail uh, because there's domestic disturbance. And so through that process, they search his home and they literally find an, an operating methamphetamine lab. Um, and, and, the, and they find all this fucked up shit in it. And here's like a cop from California on the Nevada side. And so the Nevada cops are like super pissed. And this is like very conservative Nevada. Um, and it, and it later comes out that the, that the, the glass from the meth lab was like taken out of a raid that he conducted and all these things. So anyways, I being the activist that I am, this guy had also been a part of over like 150 medical cannabis raids through the past decades. People that were our suppliers at Tahoe wellness, like he had conducted so many, uh, so many raids. It was unreal. And so I, do a call to action. And I'm like, look, this is fucked up. The, the, they tried to sweep this under the rug. We, you know, I, I organized buses to go to our board of supervisors in Placerville down the hill. And I wrote a letter to the U S department of justice, as well as like, uh, the prosecuting attorney and, and all of that. And, and said that this needs to be a federal investigation. You have state lines being crossed. Like, uh, and I made a big deal out of it. So our buses were organized June 2nd to the board of supervisors, like 150 people ready to go. June 1st, 8 a.m., El Dorado Sheriff's out of nowhere, raid Tahoe Wellness, literally break. Our community center is detached from the dispensary. It's not even, it's like on the side of it. And um, and they break the windows open uh, when they had the keys to it in their hand. They like met my manager in the morning. It was unreal. And and they literally rob us, take all of our genetics, all of our plants. We have a, we're a micro business. So we have uh, all of that on site and, and take everything. And so that was obviously a major reset also in time. And we had to go through a lot to like rebuild from that. I'm fucking sorry that happened to you. I'm something that you put so much of your heart into. And as you alluded to, everything on the shelves is coming from local people, growers that you know, the war on drugs and the war on cannabis are so illogical and so obviously uh, corrupt and racist in their implementation. Uh, but in this instance, what we see is your free speech right, your First Amendment right, your constitutional right to speak your mind and in uh, this instance to point out corruption in your community is being obviously attacked by law enforcement and the government as a means of one trying to shut down your speech and also to have a chilling effect on anybody else who might question the police or these authorities actions that is a fundamental part of how and why the war on drugs continues to this day as a means of silencing communities that have every reason to question the authorities. As an American, as a citizen, as, as somebody who I know to be quite patriotic uh, about the actual 
founding principles of this country, you know, how did that sit with you? Well, at first it makes you angry, right? It is the first reaction. Uh, but it was so wrong. And I mean, at the time too, they, they, the lady that I bought this property, they raided her at 8 a.m. She was 87 or 88 years old at the time. And the intention was that she would be so scared to let us reopen. Um, thankfully, she's like a, she was a warrior. I mean, she was no joke. And she, she told them to, to get out of her house uh, and, and let us reopen the same day. So it was, but that was how much the power of like the sheriff's office and how corrupt they really are is that they're willing to go to the extents of manipulation and of scare tactics to an 88 year old woman that is literally the matriarch of the town. She, th their name is on the hospital here that, that you know, they're, they're like some of the oldest families here. So that that's the level that, that that they were willing to go to, and it was unreal. And and this is all in defense of a cop who was producing methamphetamine. A hundred percent. I mean, there was no, you know, the essay, it was kind of great because they wanted to say like their press release that it was about tax and that there was all these things, and it was like, well, we had already done a full audit with IRS uh, with a criminal, uh, whatever they they analyzed us for criminal findings. There's no criminal findings found in my taxes or Tahoe Wellness. So, so therefore, the local DA trying to charge criminal tax crimes is just a joke. Uh, but it was like what their fallback was. However, the SF Gate and I think the Chronicle both fully picked up and covered it on like, you know, this is completely vindictive and was completely, because it was. I mean, there was just no two ways about it. And, and we still showed up at Board of Supervisors. It just wasn't with 150 people. At first, it just really made me angry. And then the first thing that you're doing is, oh, wow, how do I rebuild this? We still have, you know, 300 or 400 people a day walking through the door. Even as we're getting raided, people are pulling up. What the, f you know? And so as soon as they left, they found nothing to arrest me for. They raided all of my properties. I had a house here, another office here. They raided everything simultaneous. You're talking like 80 or 90 cop. They took all the, the keys to everything I owned, seized every computer I had, every cell phone I had at all of my houses. But the first thing was like, hey, we got to get this, you know, we still have people coming by. So I just like went over to my buddy's house, give me a pounded. And we just like brought the scale back out on the counter and just like started selling weed <laughs> like we did back in the day. And so like they were gone by three, like we were rocking and like, and so we just like, we, we basically just got, and I think that that definitely like at the time surprised the city. Like they thought for sure that the old, you know, Patty was never going to let me reopen. Like she would be scared to death. And that we that 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 would be it, and it, and we were like absolutely not. We were open that night, but it put us far back in debt. I mean, it was, you know, especially with your cultivation and some of those things. And then I start to to see like local government and some how corrupt local government can be. And anyways, it gets into a very intense thing. And the city shows up in bankruptcy court to support me and Tahoe Wellness being evicted. And and this was when I start to realize like wow, like this is like really, really wrong. And, um, and so I, I start to get more involved after the raid and all of that 2015 to basically like 2018, which is when we get all of them out there. I get elected was unbelievable. The amount of attempts, uh, and things. And we had to, so I, we basically had to hit the streets twice to get signatures. Um, you know, they, they, so 
I'll, I'll go through as well that that's a period of when Prop 64 is being uh, on the streets. And, and I was avidly against Prop 64 and all the way through AB 266, um, you know, spoke highly against Macursa and all of that all the way through um, because the, there was so many problems and issues with it. And, and we did get some change. Prop 64 is the uh, legalization for every adult initiative that was uh, eventually passed by voters in California. And, it, and it, was a, it was a controversial time because the first attempt was to regulate the medical side of things that then would flow through to the legal side. And it became a lot of very controversial things that I think now today we can show uh, what we were saying was not wrong. And there's, there's many things that need to be corrected, but I fought really heavy on prop 64 until one week before the vote. And and we had a panel here in Tahoe with a huge room of people. And I had to, I had to really think about the reality that in 2010, the California voters said no to, to cannabis with prop 19 to cannabis legalization. And I think when you say no, you don't only say no, but you also validate the criminal code on the books. And in 2016, I, I was talking with like a good friend of mine who's an attorney, and there was a ton of cases in, in counties like Trinity and Mendo, and even here in El Dorado, Humboldt, that were just waiting to see for the vote of Prop 64, because if it went one way, obviously that most of those cases were dumb. If it went the other way, a prosecuting attorney is able to talk about like the people of California validating the criminal codes on the books, not once, but twice. But what it did when that passed was then created the licensing for uh, cities and, and counties to, to, to basically develop, uh, which would allow more dispensaries. And so at that time, the, the city council uh, decided that they would create an ad hoc committee of a citizen ad hoc committee that would would form the the cannabis uh, ordinance. So of course I want to be on that as well as I asked for my general manager, and we get denied. We're told that nope, we, we're not allowed to be on the committee because they want people that have no interest of cannabis. They want pure citizens advisory, and they create an ordinance that essentially spot zoned Tahoe Wellness and the majority of our uses except for retail out of existence. And uh, it also said that we would not be given any existing property rights that we needed to apply uh, through the same thing to, to be able to be validated unless we wanted to stay as only medical. Um, and I already knew the, the city government that I was dealing with because I had been dealing with the city manager um, and I knew that we would never be selected. And so the ordinance was essentially written to allow uh, for places to open up around us. Uh, and us, we would have to still have a recommendation to walk into our door, but the others, you know, wouldn't. And we're in a small town. Um, so we obviously took issue with that and they passed it. So we hit the streets. You can do what's called a referendum. And in our city code, it's 30 days after the city council passes the the ordinance that we can go collect signatures from 10% of the elector. And then that vote, that law doesn't pass. Uh, and so we did, we successfully did that. Uh, and we threw it back in their face. And I had never thought that I would ever be a part of government. I had fought in my whole life. What happened is I, I decided to kind of like join a movement to create a change and sweep the council because we have a five-person council. So in 2018, I was elected to city council here in the city of South Lake Tahoe. 
I talked myself into running uh, again in 2022. I did not spend one penny on the campaign. We're a small town and like people have seen us now for four years. And like, I believe that strongly that you shouldn't have to then go out and spend more money to get reelected if you've been doing a good job. I mean, I showed up to the debate, so that was cool. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I want to go speaking of debates and 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 running locally and outlaw to uh insider uh in some sense I I do want to recommend to people the episode of this podcast uh where Hunter Thompson ran for sheriff of uh his county in Colorado and I see you in that tradition only you won uh no no shade to <laughs> no shade to Hunter S Thompson of course um what what has been, you know, focusing in on 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 cannabis? What has been the most satisfying thing that you've been able to do since gaining that seat at the table of power to move things forward in regards to weed? There's state law that's very strict around me not being able to use my influence to, to something I have a financial interest, which I couldn't agree more. So I'm very, I have to recuse on anything that comes across our agenda. And it actually becomes a lot more challenging because I can't directly talk to my city manager, city attorney, any other council member about cannabis policy or what what changes locally we we need to make. With that being said, the best thing that has happened over these years was we, the city of South Lake Tahoe, is members of the League of California Cities. And the League of California Cities was one of the major staunch op- like opposers of cannabis. And, and they're really... to blame, I will say, for a lot of these like unbelievably ridiculous regulations, as well as why I think today like 70% of municipalities in the state of California have still have a ban on dispensaries. And the League of California Cities is, we do like an annual conference. They do tons of conferences where all the city council members and city managers across the state meet. When I joined Five a little five years now, uh, and went to my first conference. I noticed a panel on how to regulate cannabis and this and that, and so I went to that, and it was just so anti. It was really about how do you keep it out? Here are all the tools that you do to keep cannabis out of your community, uh, and so it was kind of cool. I, I really was able to approach the executive director at that meeting and like talk to her about you know the benefits, about what we know. Um, and how I wanted to use my position in the League of Cities to to start to educate that side of it. Like, there should be both sides of it. Um, and so what was cool is I was inv- invited to put together a panel uh, at their conference in Newport Beach uh, and was able to present to other city council members across the state uh, about sensible cannabis policy. A lot of it was honestly about uh, some of the failures of what cities are seeing and, you know, a lot of the things across California that aren't working. And a lot of that isn't like the, more of it is about like the regulations and this overtaxation has made businesses not be able to, to succeed. So that, that has been, I would say for me, the most effective policy uh, side of things. And what's cool, we have a uh, cannabis caucus like being formed in the League of California cities. Now, Now we have like five different operators that are elected in the state. That That's like a huge thing. And so because we have that many members in the league, we're going to create like our own, you know, cannabis caucus within the league. And from that becomes like a resource for all of those council members and people to, to contact us. That's amazing. That is an incredible journey. 
that you took us on from the height of the drug war in the 80s in Texas, the uh, terrible disruption of your family's life through uh, landing in California at the pivotal moment uh, when this first uh, statewide medical cannabis law was passed up into the hills of the Emerald Triangle for sort of this uh, uh, outlaw era of of guerrilla gardening and hiding in the woods and playing cat and mouse with police helicopters, getting caught up in the system, seeing the full brunt of the authorities' attempts to eradicate this plant, planting your back foot, pushing back, becoming an activist, becoming a politician, and correct me if I'm wrong, am I talking to the mayor right now? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was appointed the mayor uh, at our last meeting. So I got three more years, and then I think I'll probably hang my hat up in the political world. But you never know. While we have the mayor on the line, uh, <laughs> I first of all, I just want to say thank you, of course, for sharing your story with all of us here on Great Moments in Weed History and for all of the work that you have done uh, above and below ground for this plant, for everything that you've had to endure personally, professionally, uh, and for everything that you've overcome and, and for servicing uh, this plant and your community just can't thank you enough. I also I want to note this is not uh, the first time we've had a politician on uh, this program, but Representative Blumenauer from Oregon did decline uh, to smoke weed with me. I'm wondering if I can, on the way out, light one up with the mayor. Of course. Oh, of course. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's a great moment in weed history for me. Um, I think your story was obviously full of great moments in weed history, and I cannot thank you enough for joining us on the show. Right on, David. Hey, great to be here, and thank you for having me. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.